You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Turn back to that passage that we read together in the Gospel according to Luke, uh, chapter 24, and you'll find the passage, I think, is on page 1061, at least it's still in the same place it was when we had the reading earlier on. Luke chapter 24, and we're going to be looking at the whole of the passage this evening, this extraordinary description of the walk on the Emmaus Road and probably the faster walk back along the Emmaus Road after dinner to meet with the disciples gathered in the upper room. It's an extraordinary description of a, of a uh, like these old movies where there would be action and then it would say, back at the ranch, you know, and then uh, you would be back to the action. And it's a wonderful thing to imagine these two disciples uh, so excited that they've met with the risen Christ. Uh, they, they go up the stairs maybe to the upper room and uh, they hear Jewish dancing and singing going on. They wonder if they've come to the wrong house, and they, and they burst in. They say, we've, Jesus is alive, and everybody in the room says, we know. That's why we're singing and dancing. They were, of course, Presbyterians, uh, as uh, all uh, uh, of those who belong to the Old Covenant community were. We sometimes talk about the synoptic gospels. I heard people speak about the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called the synoptic gospels because they all take roughly the same view of Jesus. They contain many of the same accounts and events in Jesus' life. John's gospel is altogether like a, a different perspective on Jesus. One of the interesting things about the synoptic gospels, actually, is how different they are from each other. Just imagine, for example, that we didn't have Luke's gospel. We wouldn't be missing much, would we? Except the whole story of Mary and Joseph's family, of Elizabeth and Zechariah, and the narrative uh, that surrounds the the family of Jesus and the experience of Jesus. We wouldn't know uh, much about those early days. Uh, somebody else we'd never have heard about was called Zacchaeus. Remember the little man who went up the tree? We'd know absolutely nothing about him if we relied on Matthew and Mark and John. You would never know about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Extraordinarily, Luke is the only gospel writer who tells the single most famous story that's ever been told, the parable of the prodigal son. And Luke's the only gospel writer who tells us the story of the journey on the Emmaus Road. Yes, uh, these first three gospels are synoptic, they kind of follow the same pattern. They're, they're different from John, but Luke's different from all of them. And one of the reasons Luke is different is because 
he had, it seems, an insatiable curiosity. He was a medical man, and by definition, don't medical people have a kind of insatiable curiosity? You go to the doctor, he wants to know what's going on inside. And Luke tells us, essentially, at the beginning of his gospel, this is, this is a research gospel. Mark, well, Mark was with Peter, and Mark was in some of the action. Matthew, he was there during some of the action. Luke, now nobody knows where Luke was, and maybe somewhere in Europe. So, he is the research gospel writer. And it looks to me rather as though one of the places he went for his research was to Jesus' family. That is perhaps to Mary. Where else would he have got the material in the opening chapters if it were not for being able to meet Mary or at least to meet Mary's family, perhaps these other brothers? And it's a very interesting thing that in this story we've read tonight, uh, the one person who's named, uh, the man who's named, I think, was probably Jesus' uncle. His name here is Cleopas. Do you remember how when John describes the crucifixion of Jesus, he tells us that Mary, the wife of Clopas, was present? Cleopas is the, is the Semitic form of Clopas. They are, I think, 99.99% absolutely sure the same man. And one thing we do know from history, from outside the Scriptures, is that Joseph had a brother whose name was Cleopas. His wife was there with the family at the crucifixion of Jesus. And like a number of these accounts, um, when, you're in a, when you're in a quiet room on your own and you know nobody is there, you can, you can transliterate these accounts into the first person or the second person, and they come out so vividly for us. And that's certainly true of this account that we find, this absolutely amazing account. This is simply just one of the best narratives that has ever been written in any language of the story of these two, Cleopas and perhaps Mrs. Cleopas, we can't be sure, making this at first sad and troubled journey from Jerusalem where they've been present for the Passover and, of course, for the crucifixion of the Savior in whom they had set such high hopes. And they make their way, the, the seven-mile journey probably took them a, a couple of hours perhaps, and they are joined by the Lord Jesus. They recognize Him as they're having a meal together. Their eyes are open. Jesus disappears from their presence. And uh, did they just look at each other and say, we'd better go back and tell them that those rumors that we were hearing early this morning really are true, and that the Savior is risen indeed. 
And they go back so, so full of enthusiasm, and there's this kind of uh, almost like a downer for them as they appear in the room, and they find the eleven, and those who are with them gather together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And you can almost feel them saying, well, you'll hardly believe what we're about to tell you. He has appeared to us as well. Any of you remember Fry's Five Boys? I think it was supposed to be the most famous chocolate bar in the world. And on the back cover, there was this picture of five boys, or was it the same boy, five times. And uh, underneath every single one of these five pictures, there was a word. I needed to write them down so I would get them all right. The first is desperation. The second, pacification. The third, expectation. The fourth, acclamation. And then when you get your first bite of the chocolate bar, realization. And in a sense, that's what we have here in a much more important sense than your chocolate bar. Uh, these, These two people, and they move in this narrative from a kind of desperation to a marvelous realization that the Lord Jesus is not only risen, but therefore He is alive, that He that all his promises to them must be true. If the big promise is true, that he would rise from the dead, then all of his promises are true. You can say that to your children if you've children, can't you? Look, if I kept that promise, you don't need to doubt any of my promises. So let's, let's just trace this journey. And it's worth tracing because it's a It's not only a physical journey, obviously, it's a spiritual journey. They journey in the first instance from confusion to, at the end of the passage, celebration. So, notice how it goes. Um, It looks as though they have left Jerusalem when the women had returned from the tomb. And they had heard some of the conversation that had gone on. And as they talked about it together, they they realized that uh, that there was great confusion among the disciples. Uh, And uh, notice, for example, in chapter 24, verse 11, what the apostles were saying. Uh, No doubt they did not expect a resurrection. These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. And then they're going on their journey in this state of confusion. Their minds, we're told, they are perplexed, and no wonder. And they, they are so perplexed, they don't see what's happening. Um, Jesus catches up with them. Actually, what a what a picture this is. Many New Testament Christians, when they heard this narrative of Luke's, and you remember he was a companion of Paul's, so perhaps often in the churches that Paul had planted, uh, parts of Luke's narrative. Actually, Paul cites Luke's gospel in Second Timothy as Scripture. And as they listened to this narrative of what had happened on the first Easter Sunday, they would be able to look at one another and say, that's, that's like our story too, how we came from confusion to celebration of 
the Lord Jesus. And, and just like that couple, Cleopas and his companion, at the beginning we had no idea what was happening. Um, that's the story of many of us here, isn't it? Um, we understand the Bible when it says that He loved us before we loved Him. That He went out seeking the lost sheep before we were looking for a shepherd. Uh, some of us know what it is to be, to be uh, haunted by the hound of heaven and to realize that we are being pursued and consciously or unconsciously to have resisted the pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and here Jesus comes and he, he joins them, and this is so characteristic. Uh, they don't understand that he is there. They don't see that it's Jesus who is engaging them in conversation. Now, if indeed this is Jesus uncle. you think that's strange that he wouldn't recognize Jesus, but perhaps not so strange when you think of the circumstances. This is the last thing on his mind that he expects to experience. He's desolated. Uh, some of you in the room of the same kind of uh, idiosyncratic uh, behavior patterns as I do. My family tell me on numerous occasions I've, I've walked straight past them. I've looked into their eyes and just walked on and not even recognized that they are there or that I have ever seen them before. Now, that's because your mind is on a higher plane <laughs> or because you're troubled or because like these disciples, your, your eyes are downcast. You know what it is when you, when you meet somebody after a completely desolating experience, when you realize there is a kind of, that you are living in a world that this other person, no matter how long you have known them, this other person is outside of that world, just looking in on the world, but you are, you are inside the world and, and you, you perhaps can hardly look them in the eye. Um, you hear the sound of their voice, but there's a, you, you get the words, but there is a vagueness about the sound. And so, from a human point of view, you can understand their confusion and their situation that they might not recognize Jesus, but also Luke tells us that if that was true naturally, the Lord put His hand upon them to make sure it remained that way. Isn't this interesting? It's not just that they, that they didn't recognize Jesus. It's, we're told that their eyes were kept from recognizing Him, which at the very least means that if they, if, if, if they were so confused they didn't recognize Him, then the Lord made sure that that continued. Now, why would He do that? Surely because He wanted them to be absolutely clear that He was the one who had opened their eyes. That it wasn't that uh, they had this marvelous insight. When they came back, what they, what they would tell to their friends was not jumping up and down, we recognized Him immediately, as though there, were, as though there was insight in them. 
Now, that's not how it is spiritually, is it? Spiritually, it is once I was blind and now I can see. Spiritually, it is that the Lord opened my eyes and I saw the Lord worked in my mind and I understood. And, and their confusion reaches its climax away in, in, in verses 18 and 19. One of them named Cleopas answered the stranger, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said, what things? Isn't that a moment? Remember how John says that Jesus knew what he was going to do? You know, in the feeding of the multitude, and they're, they're saying there are thousands of them here, and Jesus says, well, what are you going to do about it? And John says he knew all along what he was going to do. And you see what's happening. He's beginning to take them in their confusion. He's, he's, um, he's not giving them a quick fix. He's saying, what is this confusion? And they say, you mean you haven't heard? <laughs> I mean, there's just something exquisite about it, isn't there? Do you think Jesus ever thought anything? Or do you think he was like some supernatural God who doesn't have any thoughts, just kind of exists in a big blob? Do you think he ever had, do you think he had thoughts passing through his mind here? Surely he had thoughts passing through his mind here. You think, do you think Jesus? Do you think Jesus might have felt just a little bit excitement that within the next hour these these folks' eyes would be opened and they would say to themselves, "Can you imagine? We said to Jesus, who was crucified for our sins on the cross and rose again on the third day, we said to him, you have no idea what's been happening in Jerusalem recently.'" And so he meets them in their confusion. Remember how Isaiah speaks about Jesus, and Matthew cites these words about Jesus, that he doesn't break a bruised reed, and he doesn't snuff out a dimly burning wick. And here they are in their spiritual confusion. They have no idea what's going on. Jesus has been teaching this little band of disciples for three years that he's going to die and that he's going to rise again. And he just comes to them in their confusion. And then he moves them on with instruction. Um, there are two post-resurrection occasions I would love to have been a fly on the wall or a bee in the air. This is one of them. The other, of course, is the 40 days when Jesus kept coming back and giving the disciples these seminars on how to understand the Bible. Actually, when you read the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles by comparison with how stupid and dull they seemed immediately before, you think, wow, they were fast learners. Peter's sermon on the, on the day of Pentecost expresses phenomenal understanding of the Old Testament, and the man was a dimwit by comparison before the seminar that Jesus gave them in the resurrection. And we're told what Jesus did. He began to instruct them. And the first thing he did was to say to them, now, 
Um, you have a heart problem. You have a heart problem. And he's just giving them a little hint that the problem is not up here. Because they must have heard time and time again, they belonged to maybe not the innermost sort, but the next sort of disciples of Jesus. And they had heard so often Jesus pointing them to the Old Testament Scriptures, citing Old Testament prophecies, showing that He was the Son of Man, that He was the suffering servant, that He was the King who was the the son of David. And he says, oh, this is not an intellectual problem here. That's such an important thing to understand, isn't it? Not least if you're in an intellectual environment. It isn't that the gospel is intellectually difficult to understand. It is that it's hard to take. That's the reason why you can speak to some of the great intellectuals in the Western world and say to them, can you tell me what the Christian gospel is? And they are completely incapable of doing it. Happened to see a letter in the Times this week. The Times. I mean, this is not the Dundee version of the Courier with due respect to the Courier or the Press and Journal or even the Herald or the Scotsman. This is the great newspaper of the Western world. And somebody writes in to tell us what Christianity is. It's keeping the two great commandments. Love God. Love your neighbor. You could be almost any kind of religion and believe those were the two great commandments. The ignorance is unbelievable. But the source of the ignorance is not that it's difficult to understand. It's not an intellectual problem in that sense. It's a heart problem that so confuses the intellect that people refuse to believe what is clearly presented in the Word of God. And so they're not even able to take it in, to understand it. And to some extent, at least, this has been true of this couple. Oh, he says, you idiots, you're a bunch of idiots. The pair of you, you're idiots. You've been slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have told you. And then we're told he does something absolutely wonderful in verse 27. He says, you don't you understand that the Old Testament taught us that the Christ needed to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, that doesn't mean he went through the whole Bible. You cannot do this in a couple of hours' walk on a, on a Sunday afternoon. It means that he showed them in all the Bible, in all the parts of the Bible, presumably taking little selections. Otherwise, they didn't need to come to the 40-day seminar that followed and saying, don't you see it in the Torah? Don't you see what Genesis 3.15 was promising, that if the seed of the woman was going to overcome the serpent, then in the process... The serpent would crush 
a seed. And it would be in that crushing that the seed would crush the serpent. I mean, it's all, it's all in Genesis 3.15. The suffering of the seed in the process of triumphing over the ultimate enemy, the serpent. And then the promises that follow. The promise of the, of the deliverance that would come. The promise of the of the, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and end of 52, who would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastised to bring us peace, would experience uh, strokes in order that we might be healed. And, and, the, and the pictures of, of what is, what is the, the king going to be like? Well, He's going to be a David-like king. He's going, to, he's going to suffer before he's exalted. He's going to face enemies and be attacked, but he's going to triumph and be the victor. And you see what he's saying. He's, he's kind of underlining their Old Testament for them. And saying, look at that verse. Look at that statement. Don't you see this pattern running throughout the whole of the Scriptures that points forwards to the Messiah coming to suffer and die and then to rise again and enter his glory. It's the key to the whole of the Bible, he's saying. It's of the very essence of the pattern. Don't you understand what these sacrifices were all about? And then this marvelous thing happens. There's confusion, then there's instruction. And, and then before we get to uh, stage number four, there's stage number three, it's, it's invitation. And you really know the Lord is working when this happens. Uh, they, they get to Emmaus, and we're, we're told the evening, it's, it's wearing on, it's getting dark. And, and they say, well, stay with us. It's toward evening. The day is now far spent. And, and I don't know how this happened, but G, we're told Jesus made as though he was going to go further. Well, he knew what he was going to do all along. This is the same time he's known what he's going to do all along. You know, but here they come to like uh, 2006A Emmaus Road and uh, Cleopas says, this is, this, is where, this is the end of our journey. We live here. Won't you, won't you please come in. Join us for a meal. Well, that's just Eastern hospitality, isn't it? Well, it's more than Eastern hospitality. You know, personally, just absolutely personally, I am not wildly enthusiastic when I hear people say, I fell in love with Jesus. I'm not wildly enthusiastic about that expression, okay? Not wildly enthusiastic about it. But actually, it's not a bad metaphor for this reason. When you fall in love with somebody, what happens? Two things happen. Well, first of all, you want to be with them as long as they are willing to stay with you. And another strange thing happens. You want to spend time with the people who know the person with whom you have fallen in love. Don't you? Just to be near them, to hear about them, 
and best of all, to be with them. Well, it wouldn't be appropriate really to say they had fallen in love with Jesus, but in a way it was like that. They, they, wanted, they wanted this to go on forever. And if this person, whoever he was, I mean, isn't it fascinating? They don't even say, how do you know all these things? This person, whoever he was, obviously knows so much about Jesus. Please come and have a meal. And you can almost see if this is Mrs. Cleopas, Cleopas saying, just take as long as you can with the macaroni and cheese. You know. Because we want this to go on forever. And it's, it is such a beautiful uh, illustration, isn't it, of what actually happens. I mean, they, they, they still do not know this is the Savior. But they, if this man knows the Savior, they want to be in this man's presence. Some of you came to Christ that way. You, you really had no idea what was happening. But there were these Christians and somehow or another you were drawn irresistibly, it seemed, to, to spend time with them. Um, you maybe even didn't notice what was happening, that you were, you were moving from being critical of them and kind of standoffish about them, and yet you, fa- you found yourself drawn to them, and you didn't know what was happening. You were being drawn to them because there was something about them that reminded you of Jesus, and there was something about this stranger that reminded them of Jesus because he was Jesus. And they wanted him to stay. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to listen to him. They wanted more of him. That that happened to you? Um, And then there's stage number four. It's illumination. Um, it's Eastern hospitality. They realize whoever this stranger is, he is greater than they are. And you know what it's like? You know, one of the horrible things about being a minister, you go to anything and someone say, now the minister will say a few words. The minister will say grace. You just can somebody else say a few words and say grace? It's always got to be the minister. But even if it's not the minister, if there's somebody there, and, and we all recognize he's… I won't mention the names that are flashing through my mind of people in the congregation, but if they're there, you want to say, will you pray, will you, you know? And it's very natural they say to Jesus, will you, will you say the blessing, break the bread? And Luke doesn't tell us how it happened, you know? Books are full of it, you know. Did they see the nail prints in his hands as he broke the bread? Did they had they been often at table with him when he had broken bread? I mean, just like voices, isn't it? Just like voices, even movements. Isn't it amazing how you can recognize somebody just from the back of their head or from the way they move their hands or the way they hold the knife and fork or the way they break bread? And it's just at that moment, you know, it's like these quiz programs where you get five points if you can guess who it is just by seeing a bit of the ear, and then four if you need to see the nose, and then, you know, 
This is just like the last piece of the puzzle fitting into place. And this is absolutely delightful. As, as soon as it, it dawns on them, and it seems to have dawned on them both simultaneously. And he, he makes off. Where's he gone? Well, I know where he's gone. He's, he's gone back along the Emmaus Road. He's going to turn up in the house just after they get back. And they, they recognize him. And it's just then that, that love for his presence becomes faith in him as a risen Savior. It's interesting that this is the expression Luke uses in chapter 2, isn't it? When he describes what the early church did, how they were together, they had all things in common, and how they, they broke bread. And some people think that's probably a reference to the Lord's Supper. I remember a friend, a minister in the United States, telling me of a man who came to their worship services, confessedly wasn't a Christian, sat under the ministry of the Word week by week, seemed to be drinking it in. He said, you know, I was sitting at the Lord's table as the, as the bread and the wine were going out one day, and I just looking up to check everything was in order. And as the elements came along, the seats to this man, I think I saw the moment he was converted. I saw it in his face. The lights went on, and the transformation seemed to affect him physically. It was as though the burden was rolled off his shoulders. The, the, the muscles in his face even seemed to relax. There seemed to be a, a light that I could see in his eyes. Just like this, when they recognized him, this wonderful moment of illumination. And of course, as they rush back, um, you know, if you were a movie director here, you know, you'd have them flying out and then the camera would be back and there'd be like the half-eaten macaroni and cheese or, you know, the Welsh rarebit or, you know, whatever it was, just, just lying there. And the next thing would be, they'd be up those stairs, up to the upper room, uh, puzzled at the noise that was going on, bursting in, and joining in the celebration. And once perhaps they'd got over the natural human disappointment of thinking, we ran all this way, seven miles we ran to tell you that Jesus is alive and He's risen. And you're just looking at us and saying, are you the only people in Jerusalem who haven't heard that Jesus is alive and risen? And they join in this amazing celebration. They told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And then this moment, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, said to them, Peace to you. And everything went quiet. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. 
And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Well, of course they had something to eat. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it. And he ate it before them. Wasn't that fun? I mean, what a moment that was. This was the moment when Jesus became all religious and stiff. He's saying, oh, my dear, dear, dear friends, how long have I tried to explain to you that I would rise from the dead? Give me a piece of fish. And he ate it before them. And then he said, okay, let's start again. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, the Psalms, and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's a beautiful expression, isn't it? You can never forget this expression once you've read it. This couple who looked to each other and said, just as Jesus disappeared, was your heart burning within you on the road? Mine was. You know, in many ways, that's the, the thing I was uh, reading about uh, John and Charles Wesley. In 1735, John Wesley went to Georgia in what used to be the colonies and is now the United States of America. And he wrote this in his journal, my chief motive, he was an Anglican clergyman, but he was not a Christian. My chief motive is the hope of saving my own soul. Three years later, he had a profound sense that he was not a Christian. If it be said that I have faith, for many say such things, I answer, so have the devils. I want that faith that none can have without knowing that he hath it. And then on Wednesday, the 24th of May, 1738, he records in his diary, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. Actually, one of the translations picks that up in Luke 24 and has the couple saying to each other, was your heart strangely warmed when he talked to us on the way? 
He goes on to say, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I then testified to all there what I first felt in my heart. A couple of days before that, his brother Charles Wesley had been struggling to write a hymn. And Charles Wesley records in his journal, towards 10, my brother was brought in triumph by a troop of our friends and declared, I believe. And we sang the hymn with great joy. Where shall my wandering soul begin? How shall I all to heaven aspire? A slave redeemed from death and sin, a brand plucked from eternal fire. How shall I equal triumphs raise or sing my great deliverer's praise? Oh, how shall I the goodness tell, Father, which thou to me hast showed, that I, a child of wrath and hell, should be called a child of God, should know, should feel my sins forgiven, blessed with this antipast of heaven. Come, O my guilty brethren, come, groaning beneath your load of sin. His bleeding heart shall make you room. His open side shall take you in. He calls you now, invites you home. Come, O my guilty brethren, come. For you the purple current flowed in pardons from his wounded side, languished for you the eternal God, for you the Prince of Glory died. Believe, and all your sins forgiven. Only believe, and yours is heaven. Oh, my friends, he wasn't the first to experience that, was he? And he's certainly not been the last. You experience that? Your heart strangely warmed, not really knowing why, but because Jesus has come near and is calling you to trust him because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this journey along the Emmaus Road. Uh, when we read it, we think we could easily spend two hours reflecting on what these two disciples experienced. So many wonderful things because such a wonderful Savior. And yet so interesting to us that what they seemed to have remembered most of all was, was not the instruction, the words that he spoke to them, but that Jesus himself drew near. And for this we pray, our Father, for ourselves and for one another, that we may know the presence of the risen Savior whom we trust and have come to love. And for those for whom we have already prayed today, that they may likewise know the presence of the risen Savior, that our brother David may know the presence of the risen Savior, that our freshly baptized brother may know the presence of the risen Savior, and that we, as we go into this new week, beginning today, Resurrection Day, may know that just as we have celebrated the risen Christ today, He will never die again, but be forevermore for us the risen Christ, able to save 
to the uttermost, everyone who comes to you through him. Oh, open our eyes that we may see him and trust him and love him and follow him and serve him all our days. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.